Okay, if you got a Bible, go ahead and find Genesis chapter 29. That's the first book of the Bible. And I got to say a couple of things before we dive into this. This is the second to the last week of our heroin series. Today I get to talk about Jacob and Leah. Next week, my wife Nancy's going to come and she's going to share some things with the ladies that I think are going to be very profound and helpful. So I hope you're here for that. Today, I want to give you two, two quick things before we dive in. Um, as I was getting ready for this sermon and thinking about this story, which is pretty baffling, there were two resources that were really helpful. The first was a novel that I read by Frederick Beekner. Uh, Beekner wrote a ton of books. He was a pastor and teacher, and he wrote a novel about the life of Jacob, and it's, uh, it's pretty dang fascinating and pretty helpful to read that while you're studying the scripture here. And so if this kind of piques a little interest and you want to know more about what's happening in Genesis, I recommend that. It's called Son of Laughter, and it is a novel. It's not commentary, but it helps you get the feel for what's happening with these people in the Bible. Um, the other thing that was incredibly helpful helpful were the sermons and teachings of Tim Keller on Genesis. And what he did with this text was so helpful for me to unlock how Jesus is being lifted up in a story so full of dysfunction. And I'd recommend some of those resources to you as well. Uh, So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this and then we're going to dive into it. And I just want to say up front, the book of Genesis is full of things that are so offensive. It's full of slavery It's full of misogyny. It's full of polygamy. It's full of all kinds of institutions that are awful. And for many of you, one of the big roadblocks you have to trusting in Jesus is reading Genesis and saying, how can I worship and serve a God that's holding up these institutions as good? And what I would say is actually, if that's what you think, you haven't carefully read the book of Genesis. Because the book of Genesis is not holding up those institutions as good. The book of Genesis is showing us just how deeply all of our relationships and all of our society has been fractured and broken by our sin. It's showing us what happens when we depart from God and we try to find treasure, meaning, and value in anything under the sun as our ultimate hope. And what's going to happen in this story is we're going to be introduced to one of the most dysfunctional families of all time. It's going to feel like a Jerry Springer episode. And in the midst of this dysfunctional family, here's what's going to happen. The glory of God is going to be displayed as he rescues people and redeems people that do not deserve it. And that's the story of what it means to be a Christian. So take your Bible, Genesis 29. We're going to start in verse 15. I'll read this story to you and we'll talk about it. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what will your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her away to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. 
And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and she bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased, she ceased bearing. This is one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible. And the thing that's so sad about this story is it's the collision of two people that have huge gaping holes in their souls. It's the story of two people that are so eaten up with longing. They're so full of an internal vacuum. They're so desperate to find meaning and significance to move from a life that feels really ugly to a life that feels beautiful that in their collision, everything starts to break and unravel until God does something really, really great. This is the story of a guy named Jacob and just how full of longing he was. And it's a story of a lady named Rachel and just how full of longing she was. Jacob's story doesn't really begin with Jacob. Jacob's story begins with a guy named Abram. And if you want to understand the whole Bible rightly, in some ways, you could devote your entire life to studying a promise that God made to a pagan man in a pagan land. That pagan man's name was Abram. And he lived in a land that worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars and ancestors. And he knew nothing about the God that created everything out of nothing. And one day, the God that made everything, the God that is the one true God, came to this pagan named Abram and he made him a crazy promise. Here's what he said. One day, you're going to have this offspring. He's going to come through your bloodline. He's going to be this son of yours. And in that offspring, I'm actually going to bring restoration, hope, and blessing to all the nations of planet earth. Now, that's really the story of the whole Bible because the story of that promise is the way in which we see God as he is, we see ourselves as we are, and we're invited into hope. Well, time goes on, and that man, Abram, has a name change to Abraham. And eventually, he has a child, and that child's name is Isaac. And that child, Isaac, is the continuation of the promise God made that one day, through your bloodline, I'm going to step into history, and I'm going to fix all that's twisted and broken and wrong in the world. 
Well, Isaac had two sons. They were twins. And the name of the firstborn twin was Esau. And Esau came out of his mother's womb. And the scripture says that he was hairy all over like a garment. He was born as just a hairy beast of a man. And that Esau grew up to be an outdoorsman. He grew up to be a guy that loved to hunt. He loved to be in the woods. And his dad, Isaac, loved him and favored him above his little brother, Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob liked to be among the tents. Jacob liked to play it close to home while Esau was this wandering outdoorsman. And what we read in the story is that even though Esau was the firstborn, God chose to continue his promise to Abraham to rescue the world through a seed. He chose to fulfill that promise through the line of Jacob. Now, here's what happens. Isaac loves his son Esau, and Isaac ignores his son Jacob, and a profound vacuum is created in the soul of Jacob. His identity starts to be built around the fact that he's not loved. His identity is built around the fact that his brother is favored and beloved, and he's not. And his name means trickster. He's a hustler. He's a charlatan. He's a guy that's going to find meaning and value out of playing the system to get that hole inside of his soul filled by people and stuff. So time goes on and he does something really devastating. He, he decides that he's going to deceive his father into bestowing the blessing on him instead of Esau. And here's what happens in the story. Uh, Jacob puts on skins of animals, goats that were long and shaggy with their fur. And he smells like the field because he puts on Esau's garments. And he goes to his dad in the darkness of night, an old man who's almost 100% blind. And the dad reaches out and he feels hair like Esau. And he smells the smell of the field that smells like Esau. And he eats a meal that was prepared like Esau prepared it. And he gives the blessing to Jacob, thinking he's giving it to his beloved Esau. Well, Esau hears about it, and he is berserk. He wants to kill Jacob. He wants to have a vendetta against him until he is dead. Jacob flees, and here's what happens. Their whole family that was already messed up, their whole family completely fractures as Jacob runs for his life and flees to a far-off land to connect with his mom's relatives. And here's what we find in this story. Here's a man that has, in some ways, the beginnings of a relationship with God. In fact, you can read about him meeting God in a dream in Genesis chapter 28. But here's a man whose gaping soul, whose empty soul, whose desperate longing soul actually thinks that it can be filled by the stuff that God can provide. So here's what happens. He has the beginnings of a relationship with God, but it's totally transactional. He makes a covenant with God. Here's what he basically says. If you make sure I'm wealthy... If you make sure that I'm safe, if you make sure that I have enough food, if you make sure that I'm prospered, then you'll be my God. So here's a guy that's desperate for significance. He's never known the love of a father and he's looking for a life that matters. And God maybe just maybe is a means to get all the stuff that'll make his life beautiful. So he shows up and he meets another trickster named Laban. And what we see is that Jacob, upon meeting Laban and Laban's daughter, Rachel, 
he takes all of that emptiness inside of his soul. He takes his longing for beauty and for rescue. He takes his awareness of just how ugly he is on the inside. And he points all of his desire on this woman named Rachel to be the answer to everything that he needs. He's so desperate for her. He's so caught up and captivated by her that here's what he's willing to do. This is crazy. Instead of doing the normal dowry that would be demanded by a father in that culture to marry the daughter, he's willing to to offer an absurd amount of money. He's willing to say, hey, I'll work for you for seven years and the only thing I want in return is your daughter, Rachel. He's willing to sacrifice all of his life for seven years to get the answer that he thinks is, is going to fulfill his soul. And then the time comes to marry her. He's tricked. We'll get to that in a minute. And instead of being able to marry Rachel, he's married to Leah, and he's willing to offer another seven years. And the scripture says it felt to him like a day. Like if I can just have Rachel, she's so beautiful. She's so captivating. If I can just have her... If I can be merged with that level of beauty, then all the ugliness in my life will go away. I'll be satisfied. My life will matter. I'll experience love. There'll be depth. There'll be beauty. Well, time goes on and and it comes time for him to receive his wife. And he's so lovesick and he's so captivated by Rachel that he breaks the cultural norms and he says things that would have been completely inappropriate in an honor-shame society. Here's what it says. He goes to Laban and here's his quote. He says to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So track with me. This is an honor shame culture. And here's a young man going to a father-in-law and boldly and brashly saying, I want to have sex with my wife, your daughter right now. Bring her to me. Now here's what this is in here. This is in the scripture because God is wanting to show us just how heartsick this man is and just how desperate he is in his longing. And what's crazy about Jacob is that in a lot of ways, even though he's an ancient character from a really long time ago in a very different culture, he's also really a modern character. He's a picture of what we've done with love and romance, with sex and marriage in our quest for significance. I've been waiting 11 years to be able to work a meme into one of my sermons, and it's about to happen. So I'd love for you to throw up that first one. If you were a cultural anthropologist in 100 years trying to figure out what made America tick, you could just check Instagram. I cannot lose you because if I ever did, I'd have lost my best friend my soulmate, my smile, my laugh, my everything, my everything. Think about that for just a second. We live in this weird cultural moment where the craving for significance, the craving for meaning, the awareness of just how ugly parts of our lives are is being brought to sex and dating and hooking up and breaking up and maybe even the elusive one that's out there that you're going to find and marry. And here's what we're saying. You can be my everything. Look at the next one. I'm amazed when I look at you, not just because of your looks. He had to add that. But because of the fact 
that everything I've ever wanted is right in front of me. Okay, can we just stop for a second? Like, how horribly soul-crushing is it to have a human being look at you and say, hey, all I need from you is for you to be literally my everything. Like, all I need from you is for you to fill up the vacuum of my soul, be the sovereign God, name me, give me my identity, be the root of all my joy and happiness. I'm not asking much. I'm just asking for you to be everything. Got one more for you. By the way, if you check the site that I got this from, you can read a lot of lyrics from Pink songs. Um, (laughs) This one's fascinating. Once in a lifetime, you meet someone who changes everything. Okay, listen, this is Jacob's story. This is Jacob's story. Jacob, who's so full of emptiness and sin and brokenness and shame, who's so craving love, he meets Rachel, and here's all he asks her to do. Just be my everything. Just fill me up. Just satisfy my soul. Just give meaning to my life. Just take away my shame. Here's what he's doing, guys. He's asking this woman to be his redeemer. Save me rescue me, change me, heal me. Can we just stop for just a second? You may think this is funny and trite and that's not me, that's other people. But I would just say, this has so shaped the way that we do life. Because like Jacob, you were born with a soul that needed to be filled because you're born in sin. And like Jacob, our experience in a broken world leaves us with a lot of wounds. We're banged up. And maybe your dad wasn't as bad as Isaac. Isaac was a pretty terrible dad. Maybe your dad didn't ignore you and favor another child. But I guarantee you, every single one of us, if we were honest about our stories, we were born with a longing. And that longing keeps being increased by the way that every turn, at every single turn, the things that are most important, security, love, depth of relationship, meaning. At every turn, those things get attacked and assaulted and it leaves us, like Jacob, desperate for a fix. He's thirsty, he's hungry, and here's Rachel and she's so beautiful. If I can just merge with that beauty, all my problems are gonna be gone. Now, if he's kind of the modern approach to Sex is going to be the answer, the right hookup, the perfect spouse. Rachel is really a picture of what we do with that longing in sort of a traditional family values culture. Look at Rachel's story because her story is also about longing. Look at verse 16. If you want to understand Leah, excuse me, Leah, not Rachel. If you want to understand Leah, just read verse 16 and 17. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So Rachel, the younger daughter, Rachel is stunning. Form replies, uh, applies to her figure. She's sexually attractive. Appearance probably applies to her face. Like this is, this is the standard of beauty in their cultural moment. She is gorgeous. She's captivating. Her dad dotes on her. He delights in her. Everybody that sees her just wants to be around her. And her older sister, Leah, is described as having weak eyes. Now, like, 
that's not saying Rachel's beautiful and Leah needed contacts. Like, <laughs> the author is not trying to communicate her eyesight. He's trying to communicate that she's not attractive. She's ugly. She's not captivating. People don't want to be around her. She's grown up in the shadow of this stunning sister that everybody dotes on. She's grown up in her shadow with a dad that always chooses the younger over the older. And she was born with a gaping hole in her soul like all human beings. And it's just been increased by the constant frustration and disappointment of being ignored and looked over. Now look at what happens. This is, in my opinion, this might be the saddest stuff you can read in the entire Bible. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban another seven years. And when the Lord, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore sons. The first son's name was Reuben. And she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She, ke- she conceived again and bore a son and said, Be- because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Okay, there's really profound stuff happening here. First of all, what's happening here is she's taken the longing of her soul and she's aimed it at Jacob. Her emptiness, her invisibility, she's bringing all that to Jacob. And the tragedy is Jacob doesn't even see her. Jacob is in the arms of the very sister that Leah has been in the shadow of her entire life. So all of her desire for meaning and for beauty and for love to be safe, I'm going to aim that at Jacob. Maybe he can fulfill that. And all the while, he is head over heels in love with her sister who's been the source of one of her greatest wounds since she was a little girl. What happens is just as Jacob had a transactional relationship with God, remember that, if you give me all these things, I need to be happy, I'll serve you we see that she has a transactional relationship with God. She mentions God in the naming of her sons, but think about what she names these boys. Reuben, son number one, his name literally means see. Here's what she's saying. Now maybe my husband will see me. Now I won't be invisible. It doesn't work though. So she has another child. She names him Simeon, which means heard. Now maybe my husband will hear me. Maybe now I won't be voiceless anymore. It doesn't work. She has another son named Levi. His name might be the saddest of all of them. His name is attached Now maybe my husband will embrace me. Here's what's happening. She's doing everything their culture would have demanded to be the ideal wife and mother. Their culture would have valued above all things bearing sons 
And here she is. She is doing everything she can to get Jacob to see her, to get Jacob to hear her, to get Jacob to hold her. And at the end of the day, he's totally blind to her. She's still invisible. She's still voiceless. And she's still alone. If Jacob's a picture of what we do with modern sexuality, that our deepest desires, we put that into dating and the sentimental version of the perfect one that's out there we've got to find. Lee is a picture of what we do with our gaping, our gaping emptiness when it comes to family values. If I can just have the right family, if I can just have the right standing in society, if I can just please my husband, or if I can just be the ultimate mom. And, and what happens at the end of the day is that both Jacob and Leah are empty. And in a twist of just incredibly brilliant irony, the writer tells us about just how futile this partnership is to be filled up. Look what happens in verse 22. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob and he went into her Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Here's what's happening. It's a bit curious and baffling to try to figure out, okay, you thought you were with Rachel that you worked seven years for, and on your wedding night, you have sex with Leah, and you're surprised the next day. So here's what's happening culturally. Like, they are throwing down wine like there's no tomorrow. He's drunk out of his mind. She's probably drunk out of her mind. And then she's brought veiled wearing the clothes of Rachel into a tent that didn't have electricity, completely dark. And after a night of sex, he wakes up and the tragic irony is, behold, behold, it's Leah. Now, here's what I want to be careful about. Like, I think it's really right for us to love Leah, to protect Leah, to care about Leah. But Leah is also a symbol in this story. And she's a symbol of just what happens when you work seven years, which is the number of completion. When you work seven years to get the thing that you think is going to make you happy and you finally get it, guess what? As Keller pointed out, in the morning, it will be Leah. That marriage that's going to fix everything that's broken in you, you get it. And man, at some point you're going to wake up and it will be Leah. The job that's going to answer the ache of your soul. The particular amount of money that's going to finally make you valuable and significant. The, the perfect body, like as soon as you finally do the diet and it clicks and you get to the size that you want to be, in the morning, it's always Leah. It's always Leah. I planted this church 11 years ago, and I think by God's grace, part of my motivation was I love Jesus and I love our city. I think I also brought a lot of motivation to the table. I wanted to be significant. I, I felt a bit lost. I got dad issues. And what's really interesting is about six years into this church plant, by all external factors, it was a wild success. It's the kind of church plant the guys dream of. People actually showed up. The church grew. We became multi-site. Like, People listened to our podcast and people invited me to speak at conferences about church planting. 
What's fascinating is about year six, I realized it was Leah. Because I was the same guy. I had the same brokenness. I had the same sense of emptiness. I had the same places of despair and longing. And I got all the things I thought I needed to be happy and to have a life that matters. And I was the same guy. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you're aiming that whole vacuum of your heart at, as the answer, as the hope, as the redeemer, as the rescuer, whatever it is, if it's anything in this creation, in the morning, it will be Leah. C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this. He talked about it in his brilliant essay, The Weight of Glory, that we have this thing we call nostalgia, which is wanting to go back to a moment where you were perfectly happy. And the crazy thing is if you were able to get in the hot tub time machine and go back to that moment, here, here's what you'd find. It would, be like, it would be like happiness darting at the corner of your eye, but you wouldn't be able to find it. It's so elusive. He, he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, most people, if they have really learned to look over their hearts, would know that what they want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we have grasped at. And in the first moment of longing, which fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. That spouse may be a very good spouse. And the hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. In the morning, it's Leah. David Foster Wallace wrote some brilliant stuff. And he was a tortured soul. He, he said this. We're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else to explain the curious feeling that goes around feeling like missing somebody that you've never even met. And this is the story of here's my answer. Here's what matters. And he gets it. He gets it. And if you read the rest of the story, he, he eventually even gets Rachel herself, but he's still Jacob. He's still the trickster. And Leah gets the kids. She bears children but she's still Leah. In the morning, it's always Leah. Now, I just want to say, if we stopped at this point, if we stopped at this point, we, we could probably just say, like so much of the world, everything is meaningless. Like just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And if you get off if you get off on moralism, try to get off on moralism. If you get off on hedonism, try to get off on hedonism because there's really no hope because in the morning it's always Leah no matter what you go after. So who cares? Pick your poison. But this story is in the Bible 
to show us how in the middle of this dysfunctional family that's so full of unanswered longing, the grace of God is powerful to bring transformation. Leah is about to get set free. Now, she's not going to get set free from her circumstances, from her bad marriage, but she's about to be completely liberated by what happens in this story. Let's pick up again verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, she called his name Levi. Now, what happens in verse 35 is a transformation moment. Verse 35, and she conceived again and she bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, then she ceased bearing. Here's what's happening, man. There's no mention in this fourth child of her longing to have Jacob be her savior that rescues her soul. In this fourth child, she doesn't even mention Jacob, and she lifts up her voice, and she names this baby Judah, which means praise the Lord. Here's what's happening in this moment. She's being set free from the system that she's in that's all about trying to find meaning and identity in roles and relationships and sex and pleasure and all the things we think are so important. She's set free to actually lift up her eyes and realize that a transcendent longing can only be answered by a transcendent God. She shifts the focus of her desire and she points it on God as the one that can satisfy and fulfill it. And what's crazy is this baby Judah, this baby Judah is going to be the next chain in the link to bring about Jesus. In this moment, what's happening is she's becoming a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She's bringing about this covenant promise by God's grace through the birthing of this baby that turns her focus off of Jacob and onto God. Now, this means a couple things that are really liberating, really profound. It means, first of all, that God is the one that sees invisible Leah. Just be amazed at that. Her husband can't see her, her dad can't see her, but the living God, he sees her. God also chooses the unchosen and unattractive Leah. And God loves the unloved Leah. Now, it's easy at this point to think that the moral of the story is, oh, okay, so um, God just always goes with the underdog. And I think maybe you can make an argument that God prefers the underdog, but that's really not what this means. What's happening in this story is way more than sympathy. What's happening in this story is a telling of the gospel of grace. That as she gives birth to this baby Judah, who's going to be an ancestor of Jesus, here's what's happening. The way is being prepared for Jesus, who like Leah was ugly and rejected, to by his death and resurrection make ugly and rejected people 
beautiful and accepted. And if that offends you, how can you say Jesus was ugly? Well, scripture says it. He had no form or stately majesty that you would want to look at him. He wasn't Rachel. He wasn't stunning. And scripture also says that in his passion or his crucifixion, that he was marred more than any other man. He was the kind of spectacle that you would turn your eyes away from. He was ugly. He was rejected. He was abandoned. He experienced all of those realities so that in faith in Christ, ugly people get made beautiful and rejected people get accepted. And here's what's crazy. What Leah is experiencing is what you're invited to experience as a follower of Jesus. And that's this. There's a way better husband. In fact, the only way you can ever be a good wife, if you are a wife, is to take the desire off of your husband to complete you and realize that there's an ultimate husband and you're a part of his bride and he delights in you. He chooses you, he wants you, he knows you, he sees you, he hears you. All of those names that are so tragic, attached, heard, seen in Jesus. You're attached. He loves you, you're chosen. In Jesus, you're seen. You're seen. The innermost parts of your being are seen and he still chooses you. You're loved, you're wanted, you're pursued. So I would say, as we bring this to a close, I would say, one, hey, maybe, maybe you look like a Rachel, but on the inside you feel like a Leah. Or maybe on the outside you feel like a Leah. It doesn't really matter because that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is all of us in our humanity and in our sin look spiritually more like Leah looked physically. We're all ugly. There's ugliness in you and me. There's greed and there's pride and there's idolatry and there's hatred and envy and racism and all kinds of prejudices. There's all kinds of ways that we ignore God. And what's so crazy is Jesus became ugly to make what's ugly beautiful, to bring transformation, change, life, light, and hope. The question's not, the question is not, do you like Jacob or like Leah have a vacuum that you're trying to fill? That's just not the question. It's just not. If you're a human being, you have it. You may not have the self-awareness yet to name it. You have it though. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to trust Jesus and have it filled by the one that can actually fill it? And like, this is not a one and done process. If you read the rest of the story, this is the transformative moment in Leah's life, but she's still a mess. She still needs grace. So do you.